Welcome to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast. My name is Andrea Samadhi. I'm a former educator who's been fascinated with understanding the science behind high performance strategies in schools, sports, and the workplace for the past 20 years. This is episode number 36 with the creator of The Learning Pit, a sought-after keynote speaker and author of nine books about teaching, learning, and leadership, James Nottingham from Northumberland, UK. Within a few minutes of posting about this interview on my social media channels, I had good friends who are deeply invested in teaching and learning from around the world message me about how excited they were to hear this interview. I'm not surprised that the Swedish Teaching Union describes James as one of the most talked about names in the world of school development. James's most recent book, Challenging Learning, now in its second edition, describes the theory and practice of guiding students through the learning pit, encouraging them to step out of their comfort zone. This practical book is filled with ideas for making lessons engaging, thought-provoking, and collaborative. Welcome, James. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today from the UK. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for the invitation, Andrea. Absolutely. Well, let's dive right into these questions here. James, we all know that our educational system worldwide has been under a microscope of discussion for transformation the past few years, even the past few decades, and that some countries that you're working with are leading in this transformation over others. And just a note, here in Arizona, USA, we're ranked near the bottom, which is pretty scary for me as a parent, but it does motivate me to want to do more. Where did your vision to improve education begin, and did you ever imagine that you'd be doing this having such an impact? My passion for education came from the fact that uh, school didn't work for me. I really didn't enjoy school. I think my uh, primary school or elementary school days were relatively straightforward and happy, but then my secondary school days, my high school days, they were, looking back, pretty much a waste of time. Um, I got labelled as a naughty boy. I was um, expelled from two of my high schools. Um, I felt as if education and schooling was relatively um, dull and pretty useless, actually, in preparing me for the world. I felt as if I learned an awful lot more outside of school than I did inside school. And so the furthest thing from my mind was going anywhere close to a school after I managed to escape. Um, but then I tried pig farming and working in a chemical industry and neither of those worked for me. And um, then I did some work, uh, charity work in apartheid South Africa and ended up working in a school where there were three teachers for 500 kids. Um, and I became the fourth, not that I was a qualified teacher then, but I... I found my calling, if you, if you uh, would call it that, and really felt as if I could offer something. And I, uh, whilst at the same time, felt pretty bad that I couldn't offer too much because I had no qualifications, I had no life experience outside of school. And I, uh, so I resolved to come back when I was trained. And so 
I, I worked in a school for deaf children for a few years as a sports coach and then that was enough experience to then get into teacher training because there was no way I was going to get into teacher training with my lack of qualifications. So I, I went in via the experience route. And when I was training, it was um, a tutor, at the, a professor at the university who had just recently trained in philosophy for children with Matthew Lippmann at Montclair State University. This is in 1992. And he questioned us, he challenged us, he turned my idea of education upside down. And I realized that all the rote learning that I had done at school hadn't really prepared me for life very well, other than to sit exams. Um, whereas this university course was challenging that very notion and got me to think a lot more about reasoning and being reasonable, uh, being more critical, being more uh, thought-provoking, being more uh, reflective. And um, I owe an awful lot to Chris Rowley. He was the guy who brought Matthew Lippmann's work uh, here to the UK, or one of the people who did so. And it was for me, I saw the light. I thought, this is what we need to do. This is, we need to challenge, we need to engage, we need to reflect, we need to help our young people to become articulate and, and thoughtful and reasonable and uh, creative. And, um, and I went into teaching with a burning passion to change things. Uh, this sense that we need to do better, we have to do, we can do better. Um, and as I was teaching, I tried to explain a few theories to my students. And one was Vygotsky's zone of proximal development, that idea that you learn much more when you step out of your comfort zone. But uh, a lot of people are hesitant to do so for fear of embarrassment or uh, showing their weaknesses. And I, I wanted to encourage my students to, to do that. But they they tuned out when I started talking about Vygotsky and zone of proximal development. So I had to find a different way to explain it. And so the learning pit was born. And I I used that to say, look, this it's not easy. When you step out of your comfort zone, it is frightening. It, it can be confusing. It can be frustrating. But I'm there with you. In fact, we're all there together. And we're going to get worse before we get better. Um, and I, I, I wanted to prepare them for that and reassure them that it was... This is a good thing to be out of your comfort zone. And um, it seemed to catch the imagination. And the BBC made a, a, a short film of me working with these kids towards the end of the 90s. And then lots of schools in the northeast of England got interested. And it went from there. And I started sharing the idea, the learning pit at conferences. And now if you do a search online, there are millions upon millions of hits. So it, it, it's a bit surreal. Um, it's very lovely, but it's very surreal. And I suppose it comes down to some of the best ideas are the simplest ideas, something that you can get your head around and has a, a meaning. And um, I'm delighted to continue that journey today. Well, it's, it's wonderful to hear where it all started, especially when um, you see that you had like a flash of light around this idea you, you knew back then, and then you just had to figure it out along the way, which yeah. is interesting to see where people's ideas came from. And over the weekend, I dove into your book, Challenging Learning, 
And I should have known from the title that I'd be drawn in because challenge is one of my top five values. I don't work very well without it. Hmm. Um, and now I have a completely different perspective as to why. Can you explain a little bit more about how you challenge learning with your learning pit? What do you actually do? Hmm. Hmm. Well, if, if I take a step back for a moment and look at the uh, evidence, there's a, a number of meta-analyses comparing many, many studies that show when we give young people choice, when we give them control over their learning, they learn less, not more. Now, that's, that just surprised, shocked me even, because I thought, well, hang on. We all like choice. We all like to feel a sense of ownership. Mm -hmm. And that is motivating, and it is a good thing to give people choice. Of course it is. The problem is that when we give young people choice, in school, that is, they typically go for the easier option. They go for the thing they think they can do um, because they think that's what the teacher wants or because they think if I get it right, the teacher won't give me any more work. Um, they don't want to look stupid in front of their friends. And so there is this culture that is very, very common that people, and I say people rather than just children, and I think adults are just as susceptible as children, that we tend to go for the options that we think we can do. So you're given choice, well, I've done that before, I've, I've used this before, I, I, I'm pretty good at that, so that's what I go for. You don't often hear young people saying, now then, I've got an opportunity to try something new and different, what shall I try? Okay. Um, so I think we, one of the things is to reassure and to convince people that challenge Although it can be frustrating at times, although it can be confronting, although it can be confusing, actually a lot more comes out of it. We grow when we are challenged. We flourish. I love that word flourish. We, we, we want to help our young people to flourish. And take any particular situation. So if you're going to, uh, let's say, a sports lesson, well, if you get the kids to do what they're good at and not stretch them and not challenge them, then they're going to have a pretty nice time, but they're not going to develop. And it's the same in music and it's the same in math and it's the same in literature. It's, it's the same right across the board. And so um, why I chose the term challenging learning for my first book and now um, my companies is that it's a double meaning challenging learning. On the one hand, I want to make learning more challenging for the reasons I've just discussed, and I want people to become more familiar with challenge so that they look back at the, the challenge that they've gone through and think, okay, I coped, I did well there, and look what I can do now that I couldn't do before, look what I know now, look what I understand now that I didn't understand before. So on the one hand, I want to make learning more challenging, and on the other hand, I want to challenge the way in which learning takes place. And that's the other aspect of my work, is looking at um, what we typically see in school, typically the way in which we organize or set up learning, and how can we challenge that? For example, um, generally speaking, feedback is given to students after they have completed the task when actually 
that it's so much more productive to give that feedback before they finished. Um, typically, teachers do most of the talking in class when actually, if you can change that and get at least a balance, a sort of a 50-50 balance, then there are many more gains to be had from more dialogue in the classroom. And so these are the things that we do, make learning more challenging and challenge the way learning takes place. I love it. I love this idea. And I've got two young girls and with everyone I interview, I take little bits of nuggets and I try to implement them in our in our daily life. And and so I was watching your TEDx about labels that limit learning. And I thought I was doing really well over here because we've got Carol Dweck down pack, you know, we're we're not saying, oh, you're so smart anymore. And we're, we're we're talking about effort. And then I looked at, I watched that video and I thought, oh no, we're not doing this part right. I'm going down the wrong path because I was using some positive labels that I can see now, you know, by just saying, just do your best with school or sports. It might make them think that I'm saying just, I want you to be the best. Can you explain a little bit about, you know, that Jacqueline Eccles, um, research and how we can lower expectation with what we mm -hmm. say with labels? Sure. So um, the Jacqueline Eccles research, it looks at how much um, effort somebody puts in is a product of how much they value that thing multiplied by their expectation. So, for example, I might value... Um, a particular pastime, a particular interest. But if my expectation of success in that pastime um, is zero, then of course, what is anything multiplied by zero? So if I'm a student in school and I might think, yes, yes, I get that math is really important. I know that I need to be good at math. I need to be able to calculate. I get that. And you don't need to convince me anymore. But I don't think I'm very good at it. In fact, I just don't think I have a mathematical mind. My father hasn't got a mathematical mind, and so you know, that's how I am. Mm -hmm. in, in so many people's mind, they might have high value, but zero or very, very low expectation of success. And so they don't invest that time because they, 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 they don't see the point in it, I suppose. And... For me, these labels are an extraordinarily interesting and problematic thing. Oh, we, as you mentioned, Carol Dweck just then, um, she and I do conference tours together, and I learn so much when we're on tour, listening to and just all those small little conversations that we have on on the trains and as we walk to a different venue, and um, it's fascinating that we are so, shall we say, inclined towards labelling. I suppose it's a way we organise our world and we organise our thinking, we label. And so Carol Dweck's idea is it is better to label actions rather than to label people. It might sound very good to label a child as very mathematical or, or very smart or very sporty or very musical, and it sounds lovely. The problem is when things go wrong. So if I say to you, Andrea, you've, you did really well there because you are very smart, that feels good. 
until later you fail at something and in your darker moments you think well if i succeeded before because i was smart that must mean this failure is because i'm not smart and that then becomes a problem for many 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 people not always but very often whereas if we if i were to have said andrew you did really well because you did a smart thing you you applied yourself you thought about it you put lots of effort in then when things go badly you're more likely to say well that wasn't a very smart thing to do or i need to try harder or i need to concentrate a bit more or i need to find a different strategy and so that helps a lot um and my tedx presentation as you mentioned i i use that at the beginning i i I'd done a wine tasting course and I was absolutely thrilled. I'd gone from knowing nothing at all about wine other than I could tell you what was white and what was red. And I thought rosé came from mixing the two together, you know. I, and I, I knew nothing about wine. And then, and I was doing a lot of work in Australia at the time and Aussies really know their wine. And I, I wanted to keep up, basically. And so I, I went to do these wine tasting courses and then in the end I did a sommelier course. And... On the course, there were seven people working in the hotel industry as trainee sommeliers. There was a, um, a cardiac physician, and there was me. <laughs> and uh, I, I learned loads and, and loved every moment of it. And at the final exam, I got 70-something percent. I was absolutely delighted with myself. And I thought, look at that, I've gone from zero to 70-something percent. Well done, me. Yeah. And then I saw all the other schools. And everyone else in my class had got in the 90s. And in fact, one of them had got 99%. Of course, my first question was, what question did you get wrong? But my point was that I felt so deflated because I was the special needs of the group all of a sudden. I thought I'd done really well. But now, when you put, when I was ranked against everyone else, it showed I wasn't very good at all. And I, I, it, it was such a deflating moment. Now, of course, I was an adult and I realized that it was purely a hobby. It wasn't something that I'd been told again and again and again mattered in the way that we're told doing well in language and literature and arithmetic does matter. You know, I was able to deflect that, that disappointment. but. As a child, I would have taken that really to heart, that right. look at me, so low down in the rankings in, in math, for example, or low down in the rankings of grading of any sort. And so those labels can become very, very, very problematic. And I, I find it fascinating that in some countries, um, it's actually against the law, not just bad practice, but it's actually against the law to assess young children. So for example, if you work in Norway, and this isn't the whole of Scandinavia, but certainly in Norway, you, they, the teachers are not allowed to work out whether some kids are very good, some are average and some are weak, before they turn seven. Yeah. And the idea is that, well, we well know that some children start talking before they're one and others wait until they're three before they start talking. Walking, there's a big gap. Some start 18 months before other children do, and we accept that, we know that's normal. 
And yet when we get into school, we start to assess these children pretty quickly. We start working out who's the most advanced and who's the least advanced. And that we and with that comes the label. So if 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 I do badly at the age of four, I get a label. And then and then too many times I'm taught to that label. Uh, my one of my favorite books is um, The Pygmalion in the classroom by Rosenthal and Jacobson. And they do many, many experiments looking at uh, how our expectations affect how we teach and how we interact with children. And there was a lovely experiment where they switched the labels on two groups. So the top group was actually given the label of bottom group and the bottom group was given the label of top group. And the teachers who taught the bottom group, thinking they were the top group, taught them so much better because when those, that bottom group failed to understand the teachers said to themselves what have I done wrong what do I need to change how am I going to help these kids to understand because ordinarily they would understand and at the moment they don't whereas if the teachers had known they were the so-called bottom group they would be much more likely to say, well, of course they don't understand it. They're the bottom group. Yeah. And I think it's a fascinating thing, these, these beliefs and these labels, and we have to be very, very careful with them. So true, so true. And, and I'm working on it over here. You know, it's, it's a process for sure. And um, now with all of your ideas, James, um, I can see, you know, you've got these great ideas. They're working really well. And I really liked when I read about your ready, aim, fire concept. And, and it was interesting because you say that it came from Clay Shirky and Michael Fullen, who was actually the dean at the Faculty of Ed when I was in teacher training in the late 90s in Toronto. So can you explain what, what that is, ready, aim, fire? Because sometimes we're just not sure of our ideas that we want to launch. Will people think they're silly? Will people... Um, critique them? How did you use that? With well, uh, Andrea, um, I, I think you've auto-corrected it. <laughs> so it's not ready, aim, fire, it's ready, fire, aim. That's, oh. uh, yeah, and, and, and which I'm, I'm glad you did that. It's almost as if you did it on purpose because uh, it, it is to, it should jar and it should make people think, hang on a minute, what? Ready, fire, aim. That doesn't make sense. And it's obviously a very bad idea if you're going hunting, but in, in teaching and, and in, in um, I think in life generally, but in teaching and in actions with, um, in, in education, ready, fire, aim means ready is do the minimal amount of preparation, just enough so that you can go and have a go. A, uh, sorry, ready, and then fire is go and have a go. Go and try it out in right. practice. And then aim is you come back and you reflect and you think, what, how did the firing go? How did that um, action go? Uh, what was the result? So, for example, if I was to change teacher training, Typically, around the world, most countries, not all, but most countries, you do a degree at university and then you do one year training to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. Some go and do master's degrees and so on, but most will have one year 
postgraduate study to be a teacher. Now, my uh, proposal would be you do six months, not one year, you do six months of training and then you go and teach for two or three years and then you come back out and do your final six months. And I think we would be much more thoughtful. I think we would be much more deliberate. I think we would be much more focused on our profession and our craft if we had some experience under our belt. Um, the same in teaching in a lesson. I say to teachers, please, 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 if you, whatever length of introduction you do at the beginning, and generally it's somewhere between 12 and 15 minutes, but if you can take that and slim it down to the shortest introduction you can dare go for, and then get your students trying it out, and then 10, 15, 20 minutes later, you stop, and then you reflect, and then you aim really carefully. The evidence is very, very clear. Students will listen more acutely. They will listen much more carefully. Once they've tried it, once they've struggled, once they've thought, hang on a minute, what am I supposed to be doing, and how does this work, and, and what do I do next? The problem is if we, if we front load all that information, too many students, it's in one ear and out the other. Right. Whereas if we give a small amount, let them try it and then say, okay, how are you getting on? What are the mistakes we're making? What can we learn from those mistakes? And, and this is all part of a, a, a learning culture. It's all part of a growth mindset culture. It's all part of that idea that we are learning together. And making mistakes is not a bad thing. It's not a brilliant thing. Of course, I don't want to make mistakes, but I know I will. If I step out of my comfort zone, I know if I'm challenged, I'm going to make mistakes. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to be ashamed of those mistakes. In actual fact, I want to turn those mistakes into something very, very productive. If I examine them, if I think about them, if we look at, well, why did I make the mistake and what can I do next? So that's what I want to do is, is, is take your introduction, slim it down as much as possible, let the students have a go, then pause and then reflect. Okay, what have we done? What are the mistakes? What can we do to realign? And I, I would say I would take that in practice generally in, in the workplace. I, I've got 30 employees and, and I don't want them to be so, what shall we say? afraid to make mistakes that they'll never actually try it i want them to think right okay i've got enough let me try it and see what happens and then i can reflect i want a sense of innovation and risk taking and trial and error and um, creativity i want that in all of my team but right across the team and i think too often in organizations in the, in the workplace, in, at home, too often, people won't take the first steps out of their comfort zone because they think other people are waiting for them to fail. But if we can change that culture to say, I would expect you to make mistakes because this is just your first go, this is your first attempt. And when you do make mistakes, let's think about them together and use them to aim much more accurately. Right, and take that feedback to improve and sharpen it. Absolutely. And not be afraid for that feedback. Because I remember the first time when I launched my stuff in the schools, not everyone liked it. 
I had some superintendents say, now we need you to go this direction. And if I had been afraid to, to try that direction or thought, you know, well, that's not where I wanted to go, then I would never mm. be where I am today. So it's the, the aim, take the feedback and run. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. So James, what's your vision with challenging learning in the learning pit with such a broad audience? You've got staff in six countries. Where are you going with this from here? Our focus is on helping people to make those changes. We want to be the company that stays behind at the end of the event to tidy the chairs away. Mm. I think there's, when I first started, I was doing a lot of keynote speeches. I was visiting schools for a day. Um, and that's, to be honest, that's the main uh, business model for consultancy. Most independent consultants, you go for a day. Sometimes you go for two or three days, but that's that's pretty much the limit. Keynote speakers will go. They're on a tour and they'll do 120 presentations in a year, and that's that's where I found myself. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed aspects of it until I returned to the same places again. And, of course, I would hear all the early adopters talking about how fabulous it was and how they're using the learning pit and it's just changed this and it's added that. And it, it was lovely. But when you scratch the surface, the vast majority hadn't done very much with it at all. But oh, they remembered having a nice day and having a bit of a laugh now and again. And, um, oh, yeah, that was good, some good ideas. And then you'd say, okay, great. So um, what have you done with it since? Yeah, well, I've been really busy, so I haven't had a chance to do it. You know, that, that kind of response. And, it, and it, it became quite dispiriting. And so that's why I thought I've got to invest here. I've got to invest in building and training a team that whereby we can work long term with people and really help them to go deep, really stick with them right the way through until they are seeing the significant changes. So if we go back to that ready, fire, aim idea, keynotes are purely and simply a ready. That's it. That's all they can possibly be. And then you hope that some people will go away. You hope that a lot of people will go away and try it. But then who does the aiming afterwards? How do you help them with the aiming? And so all my colleagues are involved in long-term projects. So we've, we've got long-term projects going, quite a number in, in Illinois at the moment, and we've got a lot in across Europe and Australia and so on, where we work with schools um, and, and colleges for normally two or three years. We do demonstration lessons, because that's one thing. A lot of teachers would fold their arms and say well that sounds great but it won't work in my school or it won't work with my students so we say well well give me your students then i'll work with them and you watch and let's talk about it afterwards and i'm not going to be demonstrating what is a perfect teacher of course not but i'm going to give you the opportunity to observe your students without having to teach them and then let's talk about the learning afterwards. So we do a lot of coaching. We do a lot of team teaching. We do demonstration lessons. We help um, the leaders to understand where they're going. And let's face it, we're going to go through the pit. Generally speaking, we go through the pit. We, 
generally when you start to tinker with things, people become a little confused. Am I supposed to be doing this? Am I supposed to be doing that? I mean, you mentioned Carol Dweck earlier. If you do mindset work, some people actually stop praising students altogether because they're so worried about saying good girl, good boy, that they stop praising altogether. Now that's going through the pit. That's thinking, I don't know what to say now. And it's okay, but listen, here's some of the ways we, we can praise without it being a problematic um, issue later on. So where we're going is we're growing that company to be there for people in the long term. Um, we know what we stand for. We're there to challenge the way learning takes place and to make learning more challenging. We've got certain themes that have been with us for 20 years or more. We, we, we know these themes inside out. We're not that, we're certainly not a bandwagon um, organization and we don't go for the new shiny toy that all of a sudden some new idea comes over the horizon or oh, well, let's use that one it, we stick to what we know makes a significant difference we've got our own evidence we've obviously got an awful lot of international and and local university evidence too and it's about making those deep deep changes um, of course, my accountant keeps saying, listen, just sack everybody and go back to keynoting because there's certainly a bigger profit margin in that. But this is about impact. This is all about that evidence. And when, when um, for example, um, you hear that um, teachers have remained in the profession that they love so dearly, but they were heading out because they were disillusioned with the standards or the grading or the, uh, the absolute... Uh, emphasis on the teaching rather than the learning and when you hear them say this has changed me and now I've, I'm getting dialogues going in the classroom now we're investigating deep more deeply now my students understand the concepts better now my questioning techniques are much much improved now I love teaching um, that, that that's just sounds fabulous a, a group uh, some of the districts in southern sweden um it's a pretty remote area by swedish standards anyway and um, they used to get either one or no applicants per teaching job nobody wanted to work there because everybody wants to go to the big cities and nobody wants to go into these these uh, this, these rural areas and we've been working with them for uh, almost three years now and now they get 18 applicants per job. Now we hadn't set out to do that but the, the very fact that it's created um, a sense of professional pride and excitement and the students are doing so much better and the grades are improving, we haven't set out to do that. We've set out to improve the culture of learning in schools and, colleges and when you see those sorts of outcomes that's when you think wow this is brilliant and we want to share more yeah that's all we hope for right as, as an educator to be in a place where we feel like we have autonomy and belong and can make an impact and the programs are doing that which is uh, it's brilliant James I want to thank you so much for your time today for sharing everything about the challenging learning and the learning pit, what's the best place for people to find you if they want to find you and contact you? Yeah, so we, uh, 
There's two websites. One, my company website is simply challenginglearning.com. It's obviously all one word, challenginglearning.com. And then um, there is also a, a site about um, the keynotes that I do that are lead to that long-term work that I just mentioned, and that's jamesnottingham.co.uk. Um, actually, we're just uh, refreshing our our challenging learning website. So visit it at the end of January or early February and you'll see a much, much improved site. That's the plan anyway. Well, everything's always under improvement. Well, oh, yes. Thank you yeah. so much, James. I appreciate your time today. And I look forward to following your work and uh, sharing this interview with the audience. And thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Andrea, for the invitation. Absolutely. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 